responds to a hostage situation. None of those spectacular, the most dangerous as far as being the highest risk to a policeman's physical health is to respond to a domestic disturbance. Because you know what happens? I used to ride with the policeman. Part of my doctoral dissertation was to ride around with policemen. You know what happens? Somebody hears a husband and wife fighting. I mean, going at it, fist and glove. And the policeman goes in, pulls the husband off the wife, and guess what happens? The wife gets up and creams the policeman. I mean, start, let my husband go, you know? Same thing's happening here. It's a no-win situation. No matter who Jesus sides with, no matter how wise his economic counsel is, he's not reaching the lowest. This wasn't about money. It was about power. It wasn't about money. It was about relatives. It, it, there, there is such... Anytime somebody comes to you and says, you know, I really... My, my husband and I have this, this little thing, and I'd like your counsel on it. You can almost bet it's not a little thing. It's much, much broader. And any counsel you give will not be accurate. Any counsel off the top of your head that you give, even if it's quote from Scripture, will not be applicable to that situation. Jesus didn't want to get caught up with it. It was a domestic quarrel, and he was going to get creamed either way. He couldn't win. You can't give an answer like that. He didn't know the situation. He wasn't going to get into it. And the third thing that I want you to see is that Jesus would not extend his power by secular leadership, by the main modus operandi of come to me and I will answer your questions. You know, it is so important if you are to be a spiritual leader in this world that you know that the potence of your spiritual leadership, the majority of your potence will come by indirect means. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that comes out from your life, whether you intend it to or not. It is not by your advice. It is not by your wisdom. It is not by your campaigning with a placard somewhere. It is not by people coming to you and saying, oh, how wise you are. It's from people who watch your life and see God. That's where the potence comes. And so to settle secular questions, which was how the rabbis got where they are, which is how... Many modern-day preachers get their faces on TV. They'll get into some controversial subject and, and, you know, they'll march around and so on and so forth. Listen, I am so tempted so many times to put my energy into things that I know in the long run will decrease people's seeking after God, not increase it will derail onto some social issue that is significant, that is a concern of God, but not the main concern of God. So watch out. Watch out. 
that you don't get distracted by an issue no matter how inviting it is and no matter how invited you are. That's how to avoid the pittance. Now, what about the pit? Jeremiah 6.13 says this, From the least of these to the greatest of these, everyone is given to covetousness. From the least of these to the greatest of these, everyone is given to covetousness. There is an all-pervasive temptation to always want what you don't have, and that's what covetous is. To want what you don't have. It is so pervasive in this society from a very visual standpoint. Let me, let me, let me give you an example. There was a woman, um, Henrietta Garrett, I think it was her name, died November 16, 1930. She had been the manager of her husband's estate. She was a widow. She had managed it very well, and when she died, she had an estate of $17 million. <clears throat> she died without a will. Now, it didn't look like a very big problem because she only had one re living relative that anybody knew about, and that was a second cousin someplace, and less than a dozen friends. It shouldn't be any big deal, any big problem to distribute that money. That was how many years ago? What is it, 59, 59 years ago? The state has not yet been settled. There have been 20, over 26,000 people who have not only heard about it, but gotten attorneys so that they could get a piece of this estate. There have been people from 47 states in the United States, 27 foreign countries, 3,000 attorneys. There have been people who have committed perjury, who have changed records, including church record, records who have legally changed their names. There have been 10 prosecuted. There are 12 in jail, 10 fined after they've been prosecuted, 12 in jail, two suicides, three murders. And it still isn't settled. Covetousness is pervasive in this society. Some of you will get this tape and say, what was that woman's name again? I think I, that was, that was my maiden name. <laughs> Won't you? You're just, you can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> Covetousness is pervasive in this society. It's who we are. And covetousness toward possessions is even more attractive. I was taking Joel, my youngest eight-year-old, to a, to a uh, um, baseball something or other practice or something. We were going down the street, riding in a Jeep. And he'd been thinking about this question for a while. He said, Dad, if you could have anything in this world. Now, let me just stop right here and tell you that he loves Rolo candies. You know those, those things with the caramel in the middle? 
As a matter of fact, we might have those for communion sometime. Pass out. <laughs> unleavened, unleavened Rolo candies. But I love them too. I love them. So we're riding along in the Jeep. He said, Dad, if you could have anything in the world, what would you have? Well, I thought, now, I'm this guy's spiritual leader. And I want to I give him the right answer. So I thought about it seriously. I said, well, Joel, I, I believe I'd have everybody love God with all their heart. And he paused, this long pause. He said, yeah, I, yeah I'd, I'd take that. I'd either take that or a Rolo candy factory. <laughs> Tell you what, that's where we are, you know. We want many times what is physical and a pittance but what we are infected with is a desire to desire, to desire, to desire. A desire to have. A desire that is a vacuum. And that desire is covetousness. And we will always be that way. That's a present imperative verb. Beware, be on guard. It means it will never end. It doesn't take just one action. It's not just one decision. It is forever like that. You will always have that weakness. We will always have that weakness. And I like the King James Version much better than any other version because it talks about all covetousness. And if I remember correctly, the Greek is passes pleonexera, which means all, it means a, a, a base, a, a producer of. It's not just one thing. It's not just a, the sum of singularities. There is something welling up, see? It, 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 it is the mother of, the mother of. All covetousness is pleonexia. We get the, exia comes from the Greek word echo, which means to have, and pleon comes from the Greek word, which means more, to have more. So there is something in us that produces the need or the want, the desire to have more. Now, it's not a progressing disease. It's not a positive thing. The closest thing that we can come to understanding this scripture in its actuality is to picture a black hole. Many of us will want to say, ah, the demon of covetousness. You know, one of the books I read this week was This Present Darkness is... Good book. This Frank Peretti is a wonderful writer. Um, and he has a good level of spiritual maturity, but not a good level of spiritual sophistication because whenever there's a desire that comes, he just attaches a demon with that name to it and says, oh, there's the demon of such and such. Leaves out who we are. Leaves out our flesh. See, if you want something, it must be a demon. Well, that's not how it is. We are made, and there is a spiritual vacuum in us we were made to love God. And if that vacuum is not, if that need is not filled with God, it starts pulling into it. There's not an explosion, there's an implosion of things that really do matter in our life. The desire begins to suck in the things that God has given us. Let me ask you a question. If you want your neighbor's wife, how much can you appreciate your own? If you want your neighbor's cow, <laughs> your neighbor have a cow? If you want your neighbor's car, how much can you appreciate your own? If you want your, if you, if the first thing you do on Saturday morning is get that paper and rip it open to the new home section, 
How grateful are you going to be for the home that you have? You see what I'm saying? There is a black hole experience in us. There is a, there's a tendency for things to be sucked into and never, never heard from again. That's what desire is. It is, it is taking all of those things that we do have and making them not matter anymore so that we can always strive for more. And we fantasize about all kinds of things. It's not necessarily monetary. Some of you don't have monetary fantasies. You have other kinds of fantasies. Let me tell you something. This is really embarrassing. Really embarrassing. But I'm going to tell you one of mine. The one, one that I had the other night. I keep thinking I get this under control, and then it, then it kind of springs up again. We went to a Sandy Patty concert together. <clears throat> my wife and my brother-in-law. By the way, Mark, my brother-in-law, for you youth, this guy makes me look like I'm petrified. This guy has energy that is un, pure energy. You heard of this song? Pure energy. They're talking about Mark Beeson. Anyhow, he's going to be talking to you tonight. But Becky, her brother... Sheila and I went to a Sandy Patty concert the other night. And after we had climbed so high in that arena that if the rapture had happened, we would have been there. I mean, <laughs> the stewardess would not have had time to distribute drinks. I mean, we would have been there. I kept expecting those little oxygen masks that come, you know, come down. You know, <laughs> it was awful. I mean, I looked over at Beck, she was going, I'm so high, I'm so high. Mark and Sheila, because we're wonderful. Well, these are wonderful seats. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take any other seat in the whole place. I just love these. You know, that's the kind of people they are. So anyhow, here we are, and they're playing Sandy Patty, you know, uh, um, instrumental tapes before the thing, and everybody's talking, you know, in between gasping for oxygen. Everybody's talking around us, you know, talking about how high it is, and golly, you know, wonder how we can get down, you know. Um, and I'm sitting there and the thought occurs to me I wonder if Sandy Patty is going to do More Than Wonderful Tonight that's a song she has which she sings with Larnell Harris who is absolutely out of this world and then the thought occurs to me what if she was going to do that and Larnell couldn't show up you, you know where I'm going with this don't you so I, I run out this fantasy this is really embarrassing here she is in the middle of her show ladies and gentlemen I just got to pause here. Larnell Harris couldn't show up tonight, but there is a man here <laughs> who taught me everything I know about music, <laughs> who has a voice that makes mine sound like a frog. <laughs> Let's hear it. Joel Hunter, would you come down? <laughs> Why do I do that? It's so stupid. Do you ever do that when you, you know, you're going along and you're, you hear this beautiful song on the radio and you fantasize it's you singing? And the first moment you open your mouth, the fantasy is shattered. <laughs> but why do I want, I mean, why do I want anything other than an average voice to glorify God with? Why do I want anything else? That's just silly. Why don't I, why don't I fantasize about being Billy Graham? I mean, isn't that more to the point? Shouldn't I want to go out in a, in a football stadium and say, Jesus said, shouldn't I want to do, I don't want to do that. I don't want a television ministry. I don't want to be Ernest Ainsley. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Why don't I want to do that stuff? Why do I want to sing? That's so stupid. 
But I have these fantasies, see? And even more to the point is not only why do I want to sing when I can't, but why do I want anything at all? I was doing a, we were doing a voter registration last October, and I was registering some folks to vote. This gal came in who I knew she was part of the body. I knew she'd been awful rough, through awful rough time. And I saw in her, uh, you have to put down the birth date, and she was going to have her 40th birthday. And I had had my 40th earlier, the, the April before. And so I was saying, how's that going to be for you? I was trying to be sensitive, you know. <laughs> How's that going to be? You know, I had my 40th, and it wasn't, it wasn't tough at all. I mean, I mean, I was really surprised it wasn't tough. And she looked at me. Oh, guys, this will wipe you out. She had absolutely no guile. I mean, this was, there was no bitterness here. There was no... She just looked at me in full sincerity and said, Well, you know, if I were where you are at 40, if I had... A wonderful marriage. If I had great kids, if I had a terrific church, if I had it together personally, maybe 40 wouldn't be so bad for me either. Oh, I just wanted to crawl under my chair and think, she's right. I mean, she didn't mean anything. She didn't mean, she was glad, I think, that I had all that. She just tried to give me some perspective. Now, here's my question. I have everything I ever wanted and much more than I ever deserved. Why do I want anything at all? Why is that horrible, dark, black hole inside me wanting more and letting me avoid the proper stewardship of what God's already given me? Why am I the son of Adam who when put in paradise and had a mate specifically made for him? He had no stress, no disease. He could eat of any tree of the garden except one. Why wasn't that enough for him? Why did he want more? And even more to the point, when Jesus came to the end of his ministry and he was kneeling down in the garden sweating blood, all of his multitudes had gone, all of his teaching was over, and he had a few people left who were not even interested enough to stay awake and pray with him and when he turned around and he saw the Romans coming and he had nothing in his future but the cross, how could he say, it is enough? See, that's what I want to know. And that's who I'd like to be. When do we say, it is enough? When do we come to God and say, God, yeah, I want this. But if I never get it, it'll be enough. As a matter of fact, if you take away everything you've already given me, I'll know that it's more than I deserved anyhow. 
and you will be enough. You know my dreams and you know my needs. And you are enough. The only time that the horrible vacuum of covetousness can be defeated is when we can look at our lives and we can say, as I am, it is enough. Yeah, I'd like to be married, or yeah, I'd like to be well, or yeah, I'd like to have kids, or yeah, I'd like to have a, a job, or yeah, I'd like to have all of this stuff. But Lord, I'd rather be like your son. There is not one other thing in this world you need other than what you have right now to serve God. There's not another thing in this world that you have to have to become like His Son, Jesus Christ. Not another thing. My question to you is, is it enough? Let's take communion together. And during this time of purification, during this time of confessing sin, would you with me do what is called in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous a fearless moral inventory? Would you go to God and say to Him, God, I've been wanting this and I still do want this. But what you've given me will satisfy me and I will stop avoiding it in lieu of something else. I will stop taking it lightly and I will be grateful for it and I will use it because I don't need anything else to be happy with you. Name those things. Say this word, Lord, if only I could have and fill in the blank and then give it to him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are your followers. Most of us in this sanctuary have made a commitment to follow you. And there are others this morning that can do just that. We ask that you would help us now to find those things that we have wanted, that you have not given us, but we have desired and that have increased our flesh at the expense of our spirit. We would ask that we would give them to you and that no matter what your response would be, you would be enough, we would be enough. Our lives as you have given them to us would be enough and we could be grateful. Be with us now as we take these elements to your glory and to your remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers come forward, let me remind you, you are all invited. Those of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are all invited to partake of this sacrament. If you would pass the baskets and trays to your neighbor and let your neighbor serve you and keep the elements until we can all take them together.
we could have a family celebration. If you would turn in your scriptures to 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we will continue our series on reading the red, the words of Jesus. There are a lot more of us than I thought there'd be. About a half an hour, people are going to start coming in, pass by that window and go like this. I'm going to start the first of a four-part series of sermons on finances this week. It'll be one of several that I will preach uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And I want to say at the beginning of this, whenever I preach on finances, uh, there are a couple of things I want you to know. First of all, I would like you to know how very grateful I am that God has taught enough of you how to give so that whenever I preach on finances, it never is a standpoint uh, of need out of a congregational standpoint. So that there's no, it's so neat to be in the black and have no mixed motives when you preach, not have to, not have to just somehow secretly ask for money, you know, in some spiritual way, you know, catch the vision, you know, one of those deals. Um, secondly, uh, for those of you, and I know there are several of you who are very well versed in, in finance, Christian finances, I, I find that a an odd term, and I'll tell you why later on. Um, These will not be um, messages at all about uh, um, the Christian principles of, you know, how to handle your money. There are so many neat guys out who have that, and God's given them a ministry in that, you know, the Larry Burkett's and the Ron Blues and the Howard Dayton's and, you know, the guys who really have a heart for that, you know. Uh, the Dominic Espositos and so on and so forth. Guys, you really have a heart for that. Um, I won't try to duplicate what they've done. I don't. I couldn't hold a candle to those guys. So it's not going to be on, in, along that line. But thirdly, for those of you who have very much interest in Christian finances, I can't stop. Seem to stop saying that that phrase. I want you to know that. <clears throat> As may have been told many times when you go to a, to a financial seminar that has a Christian uh, um, perspective to it, you will hear the phrase, Christ talked more about money than he did about anything else in the Bible. I want you to take the, the importance that they're trying to convey and, and take it to your heart, but I want you to ignore that particular statement because it's simply not true. I've been preaching through 12... 12, uh, I've been preaching on Luke since September. This is the first time I can honestly speak about money because Jesus was using money as an illustration for something else, which is mostly what Jesus did with money. He used it to teach a spiritual principle. Jesus was not all that interested in money, but he used it because it was the most universal tender for an insight about the things that we desired. And so he used it uh, because he knew we were interested in it. But for those of you who go to these seminars and, and uh, they try to picture Christ as terribly interested in um, money per se, it's just simply not true. It's just simply not true, as you will know, as you will find out. Now let's take a look at the scripture for today. Last week we had a lot of fun, and that was appropriate for Easter. And, uh, but this is an introspective scripture. This is going to be a very serious one. It might be hard to follow for some of you. Um, 
<clears throat> Let's take the setting. Someone in the crowd. Now there is an interruption in his teaching. Christ takes a breath. He's going to move on to another subject and he is interrupted by a very practical question from the multitude. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, isn't this like a younger brother, you know? I mean, you learn how to go to the authority, don't you, when you're a younger brother? You can't handle your own stuff. <clears throat> so you go, he's picking on me, you know? Tell him to quit that. And that's exactly what this guy's doing as a younger brother. Tell my older brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, <clears throat> I've put in your bulletin the fact that I've got my own water this Sunday, Jim. <clears throat> the fact that the custom of the time was <clears throat> for the older brother to have a double portion of inheritance of any of the sons, the girls didn't get any at all, of any of the sons, for him to be the executor and the manager of the estate and for him to have the responsibility to care for the family as long as they were alive. Now, that last one's a huge responsibility. Huge. You would want to be an older brother until it came to that last responsibility. Now, let's see the dynamics of what's going on here. The first thing we can see is that in most cases, it involved a piece of property, and it was the family property. And so for a younger brother to ask for his share of the inheritance, he was about to do a prodigal son trip. Because what that called for was some division of the property that he owned that he could use for his own, for his own benefit. And that would almost certainly break up the family togetherness. One of the concerns of the older brothers, most, or many of the time, most of the time was to keep the family together, to have them living on the family property. That was a true in America 100 years ago, you know? Many times the grandparents would own a house that the parents would then move into, that the children would then move into, and that you, would, you would center your lives around a geographical location. So when a younger brother is asking for his share of the inheritance, on the one hand it's fair, on the other hand there are some very interesting implications here. But the Bible does not tell us whether or not the younger brother is justified in his asking. The father of the prodigal son thought, well, that's a fair enough thing, I'll do it. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't tell us who's right in this instance. All it tells us <clears throat> is that there is a difference in Jesus' perception between what is important and what is not important, between the pittance that they argue over and the deep pit that they're about to step into. Most of us are pulled by very shallow things. Very shallow things. Most of us spend most of our time in the details, the shallowest details of this world. How many of you sitting here this morning can say that you have spent a number of hours this week on the deepest issues of life? There are not many of us. We fool around with a pittance. And we're attracted to a pittance. We're re we really are. I was riding in, uh, in the Jeep with my littlest one, taking him to ball practice or something, eight years old. And we were riding down the street, and he said, Dad, 
If you could have anything in this world, what would you want? Now, before I tell this story, I need to tell you, this kid loves Rolo candies. Those little, you know, you, you know caramel-filled chocolate. So do I. Don't you? We ought to pass those out for communion some Sunday. What do you think? Nah. <clears throat> Never seen unleavened Rolos, but anyhow, where was I? Oh, he said, Dad, if you could have anything in the world, what would you have? And I thought about it for a minute because it was a serious question. And he thought about it for a long time. And I wanted to give him a serious answer. I said, well, Joel, I think that I would want everybody to love God with all their heart. And Joel said, yeah, yeah. I'd, uh, <clears throat> I'd take that. Yeah, I'd either take that or a Rolo factory. <clears throat> you know, that's, the, that's most of us in our heart. <clears throat> We'd either take that or a Rolo factory. You know, we have a choice between the sublime and the ridiculous almost. And many times we choose the, tr the ridiculous. And that's what this younger brother was doing. He's coming and saying, I want a Rolo factory, basically. I don't want to stick with the family. I want what's mine. I want to own it. And Jesus saw something coming down the pike, and he named it. And he said, man, who made me the arbiter? or the judge over you. In other words, I want no part of this. Now, let me tell you something. This is the most effective Bible verse, one of the most effective Bible verses you can come up with when you are arguing with anybody who is a communistic or a liberation theology bent. Because communism says, essentially, that the World evolution is a, simply a history of an arguing over material possessions. That there's a continual class struggle. The have-nots against the haves, and that's what causes the war. And so simply by redistributing that material, those material goods, you can have justice and world peace. And that is the essence of life. That is primary in life. Jesus said, I don't want a part of that. If that's the essence of life, <clears throat> Jesus didn't want any part of it. Because to him, that was just the surface of life. The liberation theologians who say that they are Christians, and I believe that they, they have a belief in their heart that they are Christians, would argue along the same philosophy that before there can be justice in the world, there must be a redistribution of the world's wealth. Because we must identify with the poor in an economical way in order to answer their needs. In other words, when all of mankind's little brothers don't have as much as all mankind's big brothers who do have more say, I want some of that. Lord, you tell them to give me what they have. Jesus still says, wait a minute, that's not the issue. That is not the issue. Don't get overwhelmed with that issue. Now to have a spirit of generosity in your heart is another matter altogether, and we'll get to that. But I just want to say to you that God, Jesus, does not see the main thrust of this world in terms of economics.
in terms of those who have and those who have not materially. Second thing Jesus saw was what many of you see when you get mixed up in family battles. Many times they're more explosive than solvable. There's a typo I, I missed in the proofreading of this. They're more explosive than type solvable. In other words, the issue isn't about money at all. That little brother could have this thing going with his big brother and he didn't care whether the money, whether they were talking about money or whether they are talking philosophy or whether they are talking about girlfriends or whatever they were talking about, he was going to get his big brother. There was some sibling rivalry going on there. Do you know the kind of call that policemen are the most likely to be personally injured in answering these kinds of calls? They're not drug busts. They are not armed robberies. They are not SWAT team type tactics domestic violence because that policeman will go and somebody's called because a husband and wife are having a battle and that husband's in there beating the daylights out of that wife and the policeman go in and pull that guy and get on top of that guy and guess what happens the wife climbs all over that place let my husband go and they are more likely to be physically injured when they answer a call having to do with domestic violence than any other call they have. Well, Jesus read it. And he said, this thing isn't just about money. It's about brothers coming against each other. And no matter what I say here, materially, it's not going to solve the problem. It's about a relationship between brothers that is not healed. And so therefore, whichever way I go with it, I'm not going to answer the problem. So therefore, Jesus wouldn't fool with the pittance. And he would not have his authority established by means of being a secular force. You see, that was how the great rabbis got their, their, their authority established. People would come to them and make them be their judge. And they loved it. I mean, wouldn't you love the power to have somebody tell somebody how to run their family? Wouldn't that be a big head trip for you? Somebody come up and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said, do this, so you've got to do it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful? One of the things that Jesus is establishing here is that the most profound spiritual influence you can have is an indirect spiritual influence. It comes from someone listening to you, someone watching you, someone not approaching you for your direct intervention, but somebody seeing God in your life. That is the course that Jesus took in this world. I tell you, as a pastor, I am so tempted to hop into every political issue that comes along. I have such strong views, and I have to hold myself back. I, I, last Friday morning I went to this, went to a, a pastor's meeting for, um, it was an anti-pornography thing um, against uh, kitty porn and that kind of thing. And that stuff just, boy, it just grabs me and I want to go out. You know, the, there, there is more money earned every year in the pornography business than all of the major television networks and major motion picture studios combined. And I want to run out and say something about it. And I want to say something about this, and I want to say something about that. And I am involved in, in some small back scenery political ways, but 
But it always has to be in the background because I'm following Jesus' example that in order to be the most profound spiritual experience you can be, you cannot be so visible as to be, ca be caught up in anything less than a depth spiritual emphasis. And that's what he's doing. He's sticking back and naming a spiritual principle. Now let's talk about the pit. We've, we've messed around with the pittance here. Let's talk about the pit. Jeremiah 6.13 says this, Every, from every person, to the least of them, to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. In the King James Version, it says, everyone is given to covetousness. What is this thing that is so all-pervasive? What is this thing that that infects us all. And if you doubt that, let me give you one example of covetousness. Covetousness is basically the desire that wells up in us to have. Not to be, to have. Mrs. Henrietta, uh, what was her last name? Henrietta Garrett. No, Mrs. Henrietta Garrett. November 16, 1930, died. She was a widow when she died. She had done well managing her husband's estate. And when she died, she had an estate of $17 million. She left no will. She had one known relative, and that was a second cousin. She had less than a dozen friends. When it was published that she died with no will. People began to be interested. <clears throat> they thought they remembered their former name was Garrett. <clears throat> Since that time, listen to this, there have been over 26,000 people who have gone to court three thousand lawyers coming from 47 states, <clears throat> 29 foreign countries. They have perjured. <clears throat> they have changed their names legally to Garrett. There are 10 who have, 12 who have been fined for altering records, including church records. There are 10 others who are serving time in jail. There have been two suicides, three murders, and the estate, which now totals over $30 million, has not yet been settled. Covenants covetousness. Everyone is given to covetousness. It is a pervasive, why? It's a pervasive, let's, let's take a look at it. Let's pick it apart. Jesus said, <clears throat> beware and be on guard against every form of greed. I like the King James better because the King James more accurately translates the Greek. 
These are present imperative verbs, which means you will never shake this. For all of your life, you will have a tendency to want to have. And so therefore, it's not something that you can decide all at once and be done with. All of your life, you will be given to this temptation. Secondly, the Greek literally, let's see if I can remember it, <clears throat> is um, paces, no, paces, pleonexera, pleonexera. And what it means is, paces means all, and it doesn't mean just every form, it means the base of or the producer of, all right, the mother of. Covetousness, pleonexia, means, axia comes from the Greek word echo, which means um, um, to have, and pleon means more. That is, to have more. So here we have someone who is infected with the desire to have more. Now, if you think about it for a minute, <clears throat> I want you to get an accurate, uh, an accurate picture of what this is spiritually. One of the books I read this week <clears throat> was called uh, This Present Darkness. This guy is a terrific writer. And he had a good level of spiritual maturity, but not a good level of sophistication. He would simply say, aha, the spirit of covenants landed on somebody and draw out a graphic picture of this thing. But covetousness like so much other sin, is not a positive, it's a negative. And the closest thing that you can, can um, the closest thing I can picture it as, is a black hole effect. It's something that is a negative quality that sucks into itself matter, that sucks into itself what matters in our lives and makes what matters disappear. Any desire in your life doesn't give, it gets, okay? So there is a vacuum in your life. <clears throat> Therefore, it's not an explosion <clears throat> of bad things in your life. There's an implosion, a going in of the good things in your life. So what happens, the dynamic of covetousness is this. <clears throat> that we, when it grows, when the vacuum grows, when it makes us want more, the things we have are devalued and they are overlooked and they are sucked in. Let me give you an example. This is a confession. <clears throat> Went to a Sandy Patty concert the other night. And right before the Sandy Patty concert, I was sitting <clears throat> about three seats from the top of this dude. From the arena, in the arena, I kept waiting for the little thing to drop down and give me oxygen, you know? One of those, <clears throat> if you ever want tickets to go to some place, don't see me about it. Because I'm the worst ticket getter in the world. So here is Becky, who's doing the white knuckle thing. How high is this? <clears throat> her brother, her, our sister, our, her, our, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and they're going, oh, these wonderful seats, just wonderful. I like these seats. No, I'd, I'd, I'd rather sit here than anywhere else, just lying through their teeth, you know? <clears throat> try and be nice. And so we're sitting there and they've got some Sandy Patty music playing. And this fantasy runs through my mind. Now listen, this is so stupid. Why do I do this? I could just see myself 
I could see it all. Larnell Harris couldn't come to sing, what is the song they sing? Uh, wonderful, more than wonderful. <clears throat> She's going to sing that, and Larnell Harris can't come. So right in the middle of this, she says, well, ladies and gentlemen, Larnell Harris couldn't be here, but in this arena is the man who taught me everything I know about music. His voice makes mine look like a frog, sound like a frog. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Joel Hunter. Would you come down, Joel? So I make my way down to the stage. <laughs> Isn't it stupid? I am sitting there thinking any fantasy I have about singing is just a joke in the first place. I mean, every once in a while when you're listening to the radio, don't you kind of picture yourself, you know, and you start singing along and as soon as you open your mouth, the fantasy is shattered. I mean, it's gone. Yeah, oh, golly. And I've got to say, I've got to think, why am I doing that? In the first place, why would I have a fantasy about a gift I don't have? Why don't I want to be Billy Graham? Why, you know, I've never wanted to be Billy Graham. I don't want to preach in a football stadium. I don't want to go on, I don't want to be Robert Schiller, you know, or Ernest Ainsley. I don't want to be any of those guys, you know. I, did, I don't want to be on, I don't care about any of that stuff. I honestly believe that if I was a, you know, a priest in a football stadium that was full, I would have no, no significant feeling that would be any better than the one I have after I get done here on Sunday morning. I really don't, I don't, there's no desire there. Why do I want to sing when I can't sing? Why is that? Why do I want to have something I don't have? In the second place, why, when my life is like it is, do I want it at all? Do I want for anything? Last fall, we had our voter registration drive here. And somebody came in and, and, uh, I was registering them, and I noticed it was going to be their 40th birthday, and I'd had my 40th birthday in April, and, and I just said, hey, your 40th coming up. I said, you know, my, my 40th wasn't too bad, and I knew this gal, and she had gone through a real rough time. And she looked at me, and she said, and, and let me say this, there was no guile in her heart. There was no bitterness in her heart. She just looked at me, and she said, you know, if I had reached my 40th birthday and my life was like your life, if I had a terrific marriage and wonderful kids and a wonderful church and my life was pretty well together, my 40th wouldn't be too rough either. Oh, golly. I just wanted, and she didn't mean that bad. She was just, it was a statement of fact. And so I'm left thinking, why do I have any covetousness at all? It's not like I want for anything. I've got everything I ever wanted. Why is it there? Why is it there in any of us? Why did Adam, living in paradise, who had a mate specifically made for him, there was no stress, there was no disease, he could eat of any 
tree of the garden except for one tree. But it wasn't enough for him. Why? Here's a question more to the point. How could Jesus, at the end of his ministry, facing the cross, with all of the multitudes gone, all of his teaching at an end, stuck with a bunch of disciples that didn't even care enough to stay awake in his darkest hour, having nothing to face but the cross, how could he say, it is enough? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that one. I just know that I'd rather have the spirit of Jesus living in me than the spirit of Adam. And I know I've got the spirit of Adam. It's not being satisfied with what we are. All of us will want to be more than we are. But there comes a point in life when we've got to say, I'm satisfied with what I have. And if I never get anything else other than this, or even if what I have is taken away, you and I are enough. I know what I'm preaching is not... It's, it's only human, you know, to want things. It's only human. It's only human to see some, something and say, oh, golly, I, if, if only I could have that. You know, even if it's a good thing, like a happy family or a, or a you know, a happy-go-lucky attitude, if only I could have that. But you already have everything you need right now. You don't need anything else to love God or to feel His love. You don't need anything else in the world to hear God. You don't need anything else in the world to be everything God made you to be. You need nothing else. You have everything you need right now. And I know there are desires in all of our hearts for other things. And I know there's a thought in our life, yeah, but we could be so much more if only. But as soon as there is that if only, there is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We need something before we need God. We want something before we want God. Money's not the issue. Nor is a good family life. Nor is being a wonderful parent. Nor is being a wonderful friend. Nor is anything else in the world that you can somehow have that you see in somebody else. That's not the issue. The issue is... What does God expect from you with what you have? And when does it come time to say, it is enough? Let's worship Him this morning in this communion. And while we take this communion, before I say the prayer of confession, 
Let me ask you to meditate while these elements are being passed. And please, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is his table. You are welcome to participate in this communion. When you pass these elements and when you're holding them until the time when we can all take them together, would you please search your heart, do a fearless moral inventory. That's one of the 12 steps. Fearless moral inventory of your lives and say, what is there that I still want? Lord, what is there that I still want to have? Let me say to you honestly today that if I never get it, this will be enough. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is so easy to be pulled toward external things, even toward manifestations of spiritual things that keep us entertained. Instead of wanting internal life, we dwell on eternal life. Instead of wanting depth, we dwell on little things that really are not the issue. Would you help us look into our heart as we take this communion and confess to you that we desire to have certain things in our lives that may not be in your will for us, may not come to us. And would you help us come to the place where we can release them to you continually saying to you, I don't really need that. You are enough. We pray in Jesus' name.